Good evening. You are listening to Independent Community Radio, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 o'clock and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. I'm Claudio Mendoza. The San Diego Unified School District declared yesterday that students 16 and older must show proof of COVID-19 immunization to attend school in person beginning next year. Yet on Monday, the Rancho Santa Fe School District in San Diego County made masks optional for students despite a California Department of Public Health mandate that requires that all students in grades K through 12 wear masks while sharing indoor spaces. Felton Pruitt chats with Courtney Terrence of Briar Patch Food Co-op, and we close with a commentary by Chaplain Norris Burks. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. California public schools could be required to have COVID-19 testing and management plans under new legislation introduced yesterday in the state Senate. The bill by State Senator Richard Pan of Sacramento would also provide state resources to carry out the plans. Identifying positive cases and being able to quarantine them allows schools to remain open and safe. And schools need support and resources. And my bill makes sure they have the resources they need to continue to be open and safe through future waves of COVID variants. The bill doesn't specify what types of testing schools should offer or how many times students should be tested. Preschools, after-school programs, and child care centers would also be covered by the requirements. The San Diego Unified Board of Education has voted unanimously to enforce its COVID-19 vaccination mandate for students 16 and older, but it will be delayed until the summer. The requirement goes into effect on June 21st for the upcoming summer session and will also be in place for the fall semester. San Diego Unified Trustee Richard Barrera spoke with KPBS in San Diego. We've already implemented a, uh, a mandate for our staff. So in order to work for our district, staff have to be fully vaccinated now. And so moving forward with vaccine mandates for all of our students uh, is also uh, the right thing to do. About 80% of San Diego Unified students who are 16 and older are fully vaccinated. The vaccination mandate was originally supposed to be in place in January, but has been delayed by an ongoing court battle. A 16-year-old sued the district over its refusal to allow for religious exemptions. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case, but said it could reconsider in the future. Staying in San Diego County, a school district there is making indoor masking optional for students. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi has the details. In a 3-2 vote Monday night, the Rancho Santa Fe School District Board decided to make indoor mask wearing optional in defiance of the state's mandate requiring that face coverings be worn at schools. Here's Board President G. Magani speaking to ABC 10 in San Diego. We sent a letter to Governor Newsom and we basically said, hey, look, we want local control because, one, the virus is endemic. Two, um, we have 90% vaccination rate in our communities, in our district. The staff has 94% vaccination rate. The two board members who voted no said they agreed with the idea of making masks optional, but wanted to give the district more time to make the transition. The Newsom administration has said school districts are not allowed to lift masking requirements ahead of the state making that decision. Magani says he's unsure if that will mean the district will be punished. I really hope they don't take action against us and they look at the reality of our local conditions and go, you know what, you're not as hard hit as these other communities, so I think you're well within your right to do what you did. 
Earlier this month, two school districts in the Sacramento area made masks optional for students while they're indoors. The state could release new guidance on masking at schools as early as next week. For the California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. Los Angeles motorists are going to have to drive a little slower in the future, and it's not because of congestion. Los Angeles City Council has unanimously approved a measure to reduce speed limits by five miles an hour on 177 miles of city streets. The decision comes in the wake of growing public concerns about a spike in traffic deaths in Los Angeles and other cities. LA is able to make this change because of a new state law that gives cities greater authority to set speed limits. Traffic safety advocates hail LA's move as a modest but still important step to reduce motorist and pedestrian deaths and injuries in the city. This morning, truck drivers opposed to COVID mandates are supposed to set off on what they're calling the People's Convoy from the city of Adelanto in San Bernardino County. Their destination, Washington, D.C. And if this all sounds very familiar, the convoy is inspired by the recent protests by Canadian truckers and their allies who opposed COVID-19 mandates in that country. Since the protest movement launched in Canada, participants have connected on social media platforms like Facebook. Journalist Ryan Broderick with the tech website The Verge has been looking into how the Canadian protest movement grew by attracting supporters in both the U.S. and Canada. I, I guess I didn't really realize this until I started doing research for this story, but Canadian Facebook is much smaller than American Facebook. There's just less people on Facebook in Canada. Um, and we also in America have a much more aggressive and, and, and a much larger right wing news ecosystem. And Broderick says that inside this digital ecosystem, it doesn't necessarily matter how many shares something has gotten, but rather which platform picks up what information. And, and at one point, I pointed this out in my story, the Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's website, wrote a story which was literally just telling people, check out this Facebook group that you can join to be part of the trucker convoy. And then that Facebook group was banned by Facebook four days later because it was overrun by people who believe in the QAnon conspiracy. But ban or not, says Broderick, the information can continue to metastasize online and find new platforms. And a lot of these websites, um, they look for things that could go viral in small activist communities on the far right, and they, they blow them up. So that that's kind of what happened here, where you had a small collection of Canadian yellow vests being amplified by... Um, you know, Ben Shapiro's website or Tucker Carlson's website or, or things like that. And then that eventually goes all the way up to Fox News, who, you know, did hours and hours of coverage about this. That was Verge contributor Ryan Broderick. You can read his piece, How Facebook Twisted Canada's Trucker Convoy, into an international movement at TheVerge.com. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment just societies 
and opportunities for human achievement. And that is the California Report for this cold Wednesday, February 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Nevada County recorded 10 new COVID-19 cases today. 115 cases are active. 19 cases are listed as active hospitalizations. Nevada County announced today that it's developing a plan to help guide future improvements for the Higgins Corner area in the South County region. The county says the planning effort has two key goals. To establish a comprehensive future vision for the area, integrating culture, commerce, and housing, and to create a blueprint for future development with guidance on land use, economic development, transportation, public facilities and services, and recreational opportunities. As part of the project, the county is conducting an extensive community engagement process to hear from community members. The second of four community workshops will be held on Wednesday, March 2nd of this year from 6 o'clock to 7.30 via Zoom. More information can be gathered on the project's website, www.greaterhigginsareaplan.com. Visitors to the site can also sign up for an email list to stay informed about the plan. According to the Union of Grass Valley, Nevada Union High School principal Kelly Roden said in an email to families this morning that the school was experiencing a significant staff and substitute shortage. The email stated that while the school would remain open, a number of classes would be impacted by the lack of staff, and as a result, some students would be meeting in the school's theater during affected class periods. As of 12.02 this afternoon, according to the same article, multiple Nevada Union high school teachers said that their decision to be absent that day was in response to the district's recent decisions regarding the enforcement of the statewide school mask mandate. The district's administration on Monday announced in a letter to staff, students, and families that the enforcement of student mask usage would consist of educating students and asking them to mask, but would no longer include exclusion from class or school-related activities if they do not want to do so. Effective yesterday. The District Board of Trustees voted during a special meeting Tuesday evening to approve a resolution supporting that administrative action. Expressing his support for the resolution Tuesday, Trustee James Hinman said, quote, We're not saying don't wear masks. We're changing one word in there from mandatory to optional, and the people that have to wear it and the parents are the ones to best decide whether or not that's what you want to do, end of quote. Staying briefly in Nevada County, two local residents have announced via press releases of their intentions to run for political office. Nevada City resident Adam Klein announced that he will be seeking one of the two open seats on Nevada City's city council, and Jason Tedder of Grass Valley announced his candidacy for Nevada County Clerk Recorder, Registrar of Voters. And a quick reminder, because of the National Weather Service predicting significantly cold weather and possible snow showers through Thursday morning this week, Sierra Roots and the County of Nevada have activated the Extreme Weather Shelter Protocol for this evening, Wednesday, February 23rd. COVID-19 safety measures will be observed. Moving now to Tahoe, a 500-pound black bear is being sought in connection with nearly 30 break-ins in the Tahoe Keys area of South Lake Tahoe. 
According to CNN, residents have flooded police lines with worrisome calls, and California Department of Fish and Wildlife said that more than 100 individual reports of the bear have been reported to South Lake Tahoe police. Luckily, the CDFW said there have been no direct attacks on humans or pets in the area. CDFW spokesman Peter Tira told CNN the department has been tracking incidents with this black bear since the spring of 2021. This bear, according to CDFW, has lost its fear of people and is associating people with access to food. His large size helps him break into homes as he can easily push through front doors and garage doors. Moving now to a brief look at regional weather, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, a hard freeze warning remains in effect until tomorrow. Tonight will be clear with a low around 24, tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 49. Thursday night is expected to be clear with a low around 28 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly clear with a low around 1. Tomorrow looks to be sunny with a high near 35. Thursday night, Truckee and Lake Tahoe will see clear skies and a low temperature of around 7 degrees. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight widespread frost around 4 a.m., otherwise mostly clear with a low around 29. Tomorrow, widespread frost before 9 a.m., otherwise sunny, with a high near 56. On Thursday night, widespread frost, mainly after 4 a.m., otherwise mostly clear, with a low around 30. Up next, Felton Pruitt chats with Courtney Terrence of Briar Patch Food Co-op about the screening of a new film that explores alternative economies and revolutionary politics. We're talking with Courtney Tarrant. She's the engagement coordinator for Briar Patch Co-op, one of our little treasures here in Nevada County. Thanks for joining us, Courtney. Hi, Felton. Thank you so much for having me on. So we're going to talk about the screening of a new movie called Co-op Wars. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so the Co-op Wars film, it's this really wonderfully produced one-hour documentary that really tells the story of kind of the post-1960s political movements where groups of youth um, really throughout the nation were kind of coming together to build this alternative to corporate capitalism. And so the documentary kind of goes on to discuss the struggles that these youth were facing um, internally in terms of their political and social stances um, and starting these co-ops in Minneapolis. This documentary kind of highlights the political and kind of social movements that were going on in Minneapolis, and they really focused in terms of the food co-ops that were starting there. Who produced this film? Eric Essie. And where is he out of? He is up in Washington now, but he was actually a part of a couple different co-ops before he kind of moved careers. So you're going to be doing a screening, and I understand the screenings are from March 1st through the 10th. This is a virtual experience. How do people get on board and become part of this? Yeah, so you can find more information through our social media outlets or by going to briarpatch.coop, that's C-O-O-P. If you scroll down, you'll find the Co-op Wars link under the event section, and you can reserve your spot to watch the trailer and pre-register. That will be available from March 1st to the 10th, 
and we'll have a special Q&A also available for viewing on that screening website. And who's going to be part of the Q&A? So we have Eric Essie, who was the Co-op Wars producer, Briarpatch General Manager Chris Marr, board member Alan Weisberg, and then longtime Co-op owner member Lou Sitzer. Why did you guys feel it was important to get this particular film shown to your customers? You know, I think it's a really interesting story, and it helps kind of keep alive the spirits and the histories of of co-ops and how they originated. Um, And it's a really timely discussion kind of as our co-op is expanding into the second store to kind of reflect back on how the co-op started and what the core values were. And I think the Q&A is a really uh, interesting watch to get some of that history on on Briar Patch. Is somebody going to do a film about Briar Patch someday? (laughs) That'll be the next plan. Yeah, because you guys have a pretty cool history, too. I mean, you have become such an important part of the community over the years. How long ago did Briar Patch start in Nevada County? 1976. And, um, yeah, the Q&A, you know, Lou was there in those starting days, and so he kind of gives a really great background on what it was like back then. You mentioned that Briar Patch is expanding. Talk about that. Briar Patch is opening up a second store in Auburn um, mid-2022, and so we're really excited about that, and we talk a little bit about it in the Q&A moving forward uh, into Auburn and uh, continuing that commitment to community, which is such an important component of Briar Patch's past, present, and future. Why don't you give folks information one more time about how they get in touch with you and how they can view the film? Yeah, so again, you can find more information to the film through our social media, Facebook and Instagram, or by going to briarpatch.coop. You'll see a link to the events page for Co-op Wars, and there you can reserve your spot to, again, watch um, the trailer and pre-register. We've been talking with Courtney Tarrant, the engagement coordinator for Briar Patch Co-op here in Grass Valley, Nevada County. Thank you so much for the information. Thanks, Dalton. We close tonight with a timely commentary by Chaplain Norris Burks. As Russia invades Ukraine, I'm reminded of the warning Jesus expressed in Matthew 24, 6, that the end of days will be filled with wars and rumors of wars. While the end of days is only rumored, Putin's invasion has become a reality. The only consolation I have is, and it's a shallow one, I'll admit, So far, this isn't a conflict likely to be blamed on religion. I say that because it seems that whenever a war is contemplated, religion is accused of provoking or providing the kindling. There's always someone who resurrects that tired logic, there's been more killing perpetrated in the name of religion than any other cause. I wish I had the commentary skills that Rabbi Alan Laurie shows when he wrote, an objective look at history reveals that those killed in the name of religion have, in fact, been a tiny fraction in the bloody history of human conflict. As proof, he references the Encyclopedia of Wars by authors Charles Philip and Alan Axelrod, who documented the history of recorded warfare in their 2004 three-volume set. The rabbi draws his conclusion from the encyclopedia's list of 1,763 wars. He says only 123 
have been classified to involve a religious cause, accounting for less than 7% of all wars and less than 2% of all people killed in warfare. For example, it is estimated that approximately 1 to 3 million people were tragically killed in the Crusades. Nearly 35 million soldiers and civilians died in the senseless and secular slaughter of World War I alone. Of course, these calculations really depend on how one defines the word religion. If religion can be loosely defined as a zealous system of beliefs and values, then you'd have to include the genocidal maniacs of the world who've made a religion of power. Now, is it just me, or does this zealous belief definition fit Mr. P to a T? Because if you think that shoe fits Mr. Putin, then you'd also need to count the anti-religious fervor of Hitler in Europe, Stalin in Russia, Mao in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia. These men worshipped at the maniacal shrine of greed, in the church of xenophobia, and in the temple of hedonism. Include their efforts, and you'd be hard-pressed to accurately count the hundreds of millions of people killed in the last 75 years alone. While these men weren't religious per se, they became expert practitioners of intolerance. Sometimes in these discussions of warfare, I'm tempted to inject a slightly different wording of their premise, and to say that there have been more people killed in the name of intolerance, not religion, than any other thing. But if you're still among those who want to believe that religion is somehow responsible for this increased level of violence, then I'd like to prescribe the writings of historian and New York Times bestselling author Reza Aslan. In response to a question put to him on CNN, Aslan made the point that religion only becomes violent when you bring violence into it. He said, if you're a violent person, then your Islam, your Judaism, your Christianity, your Hinduism is going to be violent. There are marauding Buddhist monks in Myanmar slaughtering women and children. Does Buddhism promote violence? Of course not. People are violent or peaceful, and that depends on their politics, their social world, and the way they see their communities. Nevertheless, if you insist on being drawn into a war about religion, check out Aslan's book, How to Win a Cosmic War. In addressing the question, how do you win a religious war, he gives the best answer I've heard yet, by refusing to fight in one. This is Chaplain Norris Burks. I hope you follow me on my website at thechaplain.net. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the speaker only, and not necessarily those of KVMR, its staff, management, board, or contributors. And that wraps our newscast for Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. You can listen to it again and check out all of our previous stories on our website, kvmr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. KVMR gets support from listeners just like you and from businesses like Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and offering the beauty and color of spring. For arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, and knitting, Ben Franklin Crafts is on Sutton Way in Grass Valley. Online, benfranklin-crafts.com. And Booktown Books, an independent cooperative bookstore since 1998, 
featuring nine independent vendors offering used, rare, and collector's items, including music, DVDs, vinyl, and art. Open daily on Bank Street in Grass Valley. Booktownbooks.com Don't go too far. Coming up at 6.30, we bring you the Sages Among Us. Tonight, host Keith Porter talks with Grass Valley Community Development Director Tom Last. Then, at 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thanks very much for supporting independent community radio. I'm Claudio Mendoza. We'll see you right here tomorrow for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Have a good night. Thank you.